Hello there, and welcome to the Cold Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and the aging of oolong tea. So today, I think I'm gonna have a bit of a departure from the usual cryptography-related stuff. Not that there isn't uh, much to talk about in that department. But I'm still, you know, warming up there. I think I have a lot more to say once some of the current work I'm doing is uh, a bit more forward progressed. I'm also trying to sort of write more blog posts this year. So hopefully some of that, uh, you know, intellectual output gets spent on blog posts and writing words instead of speaking. them. But also I feel like I have a good topic, which I haven't really fully developed yet. Which is why it's better to speak about it in podcast form rather than writing. Because it's easier for me to just speak about stuff without... Well, it's the other direction. If I, if I haven't fully formed my opinions and thoughts about something, it's easier for me to speak about it, to write about it. You know, writing kind of forces me to, to really pin things down pat. I have some very precise things. It's hard to be hand-wavy and you know, go off into tangents of writing. Usually those get cut out and you edit it. Oh. So it's about 30 minutes, 30 seconds uh, talking about the, the meta aspects of what I want to talk about. But, so, I'll, I'll just cut straight to the chase. So my basic thesis is that AI, quote-unquote, is not going to have much of an economic impact. Or at least not much, uh, comparatively speaking, you know, like, there are people that are saying, oh, you know, because of AI, first of all, people are saying 2023 is going to be the year of AI. You know? It's going to be the most important thing of this year. I'm skeptical of that, first of all. But also people are saying, like, oh, yeah, you know, AI is going to cause 10% year-over-year GDP growth, uh, you know, until, until 2030. <laughs> Something like that. Like, the economy is going to be 10 times bigger. Those are obviously ridiculous claims. But even even, I'd say, like, someone said, oh, yeah, GDP growth is going to be 3%, you know, sustained year over year because of AI, I'd be extremely skeptical of that, too. First of all, because people sort of, you know, underestimate the sort of momentum of the economy as a whole. But I guess we'll, we'll sort of get into that later. And, you know, the reason people are, like, making all these kind of predictions all of a sudden is because of, like, the the accessible release of large language models. So. These have existed for a while, but what really sort of led the latest wave of discourse was the release of ChatGPT, which wasn't all that new from a technical perspective, or at least like the novelty in terms of the large language modelness wasn't in this model. There was some interesting stuff in terms of making it conversational, and also a lot of research that OpenAI did on this one was on the safety aspect of it. Where they tried to make it so that it wouldn't respond to certain queries, but in, in practice, this was like a downside of what they released. So, you know, the end product was that you, you had this free API you could use, where it's really just a website where most people used it, where you just type in prompts and it's sort of like you're having a conversation, at least initially. And so you type in prompts and the you know, model will respond with sort of trying to give you good answers. And all this under the hood is based on sort of mixed prediction, where these large language models try and 
predict what the best, you know, next word is based on all the words you've said so far. And if you have a good enough model at doing this, it starts to gain some amount of, you know, at least what's perceived to be intelligence. Which, in some sense, sort of makes sense if you think about what, like, the perfect prediction model would be. Like, if I ask you, oh, what's, you know, like, if, if I write the headline to, like, a journal, like, a, a newspaper article, which is like, oh, you know, here's the, here's a snippet from the you know, top-ranked poem this year, which is written in sonnets, and every line rhymes, you know, the most logical extension of of that article would be to include the poem verbatim, uh, and for it to actually be in sonnets, and to actually rhyme. So in some sense, being able to protect text very well is also conducive to having some kind of coherency about the world and also being able to generate content. But what's interesting is because of the accessibility of this model, I think it had a bit of a wider reach and impact in the cultural sphere, which led to a lot of, you know, people punditing about what its impact was going to be in the future. So, I mean, you have people say that, oh, you know, software engineering is dead. You know, by 2025, or however soon they want to make it, you know, all software engineers are going to be replaced by AI models. I guess another thing to, to complement this is that, you know, AI art was also very big in the second half of 2022. And those things are, are very impressive, too. So you can give them prompts. They generate nice stuff like stable diffusion and other models. So this led to also people saying, oh, you know, artists are going to be unemployed by 2026, whatever the date is. And, you know, I'm fundamentally skeptical about all these claims. Especially the, the the ones related to economic growth, because it's much easier to sort of uh, demonstrate the counterfactual. And also much more with regards to the text stuff than the images stuff. So I have I have a central argument that I'm going to make, because I'm going to try and elaborate on a bit further. So the central argument of mine is that we've had computers and software for 50 years. You know, basically, I'd, I'd say 1970 is a good starting point for when computers start to be used in business processes. So for, you know, real world stuff rather than academic experiments. And, you know, since 1970, economic growth was not actually about like mid 70s. Economic growth starts to be a bit worse on a sustained basis than uh, in the post-war period. So it, it's... You could argue that, oh, that's only because of computers, but even then, it, it didn't lead to a massive, you know, some jump in growth. Um, and my basic argument is that I don't think that AI, as it's called, is going to have much more of an impact, relatively speaking, than computers in general did back in the summer. In fact, I think, relatively speaking, if you just look at it logically, of all the things you can do with computers and all the things you can automate with them, versus all the things you'll be able to automate with our current approach to AI, it seems clear to me that there's less stuff that you, you can do with AI compared to just computers as a whole. I mean, just from a technical perspective, in some sense, AI is a subset of what computers can do, almost by definition. So if we've seen poorer growth after the rise of computers, I don't expect that to change. Uh, just because we have better ways of using computers, using AI. And one frustration I sort of have is when people make these outlandish predictions, they never have any sort of retrospective look. Because if you think that AI is going to automate, you know, huge swaths of the economy, 
it's going to replace a lot of white collar jobs and a lot of business processes are going to be 100% run by AI. You have to explain why A, it hasn't been done already with software, and also to make the case that AI is uniquely you know, good in the current environment compared to software and just you know, standard programming at automating these processes. Because, you know, there's two ways of thinking it. Basically, you have to, to be super bearish about a bullish about AI relative to the future, you have to think that the things that are going to be automated by AI cannot be automated right now, because otherwise it's not really attributable to AI itself. So they have to be things that we don't know how to automate with current techniques, and also things that will end up being automated, even, you know, despite momentum and business processes and regulation and whatnot, and, you know, the, the slow adoption of technologies. And also that a large enough number of these things are going to get automated to the point that you have a serious impact. Because if it's just one small business process in one company, that can lead huge, you know, productivity returns in that company. But to see a huge impact on growth, the economy as a whole, you need this kind of you know transformation to be widespread. And so I think one thing that I don't get convinced by with a lot of these sort of maximalist AI arguments is that they fail to sort of describe why the automations they think will happen are uniquely uh, good for the AI techniques we have right now. Like a lot of times, especially when people talk about the bigger predictions you know people make, the more abstract they are in the examples they have. You know, it's less like very concrete things like, oh, you could use, uh, you know, ChatGPT to generate copy for spam article. It becomes like very general things like, oh, you know, you have personal assistants uh, that will help you with your everyday task. Or like you'll be able to search all the books on the internet for knowledge at the tip of a finger. Uh, kind of like Google, I guess. And in making these arguments, they never sort of say, and this is why we haven't been able to do any of this until now. Because the reality is that there are a lot of things that people propose that can be automated, which not only are they right, but they're also so right that they're already right now. Like, you don't need new advances in AI to automate many of these processes that people are talking about, especially if you add some flexibility in terms of how you organize. I guess one analogy I like to make is that if you look at how a person uh, cooks like a food at home and how food is cooked in like uh, industrial processes to make, you know, big know batch meals it's a very different process or like assembly like if you're assembling something by hand the way you're doing it is going to be very different than the way you're going to do it in a factory and by reorganizing things you can often automate them i think one mistake people make is that they look at a process and say oh well to automate it we need to do like exactly what this process is doing rather than saying well how do we get the end result in an automated way because often if you're a bit flexible with the end result uh, you can sort of change. Things. For example, like I don't think I've told this anecdote on, my, on this podcast before, so this is good. So my favorite invention, or at least one of my favorite inventions, is the shipping container, because it's an extremely important invention, and it sort of revolutionized shipping and enabled these massive cargo ships to carry, you know, a lot of merchandise efficiently and to be loaded and unloaded automatically. But it's not like a technically, like. It's basically a box, with, but the innovation is that it's a box that everybody agrees upon, which isn't bad. Like, it's a box that will fit on a truck, that will fit on a boat and is stackable. And it can, and it can contain a good amount of stuff, reasonable amount of stuff. 
And that's like, and the advantage is that you can just mass produce these things, and they go on every ship, and they go on every truck. And what's difficult here is that it's, it's not inventing the shipping container per se, it's getting everybody to agree upon it and use it, you know. And so often, the adoption of technology is not just, oh, you invent it, and there's cool and there's technology, and then boom, it just, it's used everywhere. Technology is also the process of adapting, you know, business processes to change these. So before shipping containers, you had people who had to, you know, spend a lot of time loading and unloading ship, uh, ships by hand. And for commodities especially, a lot of ships had, get the English term, but they had like sort of bulk storage of goods without any sort of containerization. So like you had like uh, grain ships. I think both these are still used today. We had like grain ships where you just had like the hull was ex excavated and you could just fill it with grain. And of course, when you unloaded it, you need special equipment to suck the grain out of the of the boat. You'd get another pile of grain. You'd have to put them, then put the grain to sacks, and then put the sacks on a truck. Whereas with containers, it's a bit easier. Although to be honest, I don't know if, if grain is put in containers nowadays. But what you can do is you can you can process it when grain is produced at a farm. You can already put it into bags. Although I think I think the way it works, at least in the U.S., is that. Um, Farmers will truck the grain over to a local processor, which will mill it, flour, and then those are bags. And those get containers and be shipped portable. But I mean, I'm not, you know, a massive logistics person. But my point is that, like, when you talk about all these, like, AI things, especially in, like, white-collar work, you also need to sort of reckon with the fact that, you know, businesses are not super, <laughs> super flexible most of the time, especially when it comes to, like, core business processes that involve a lot of people. Like, the more people something involves, the more difficult the process is going to be to change. Because a lot of people who, who sort of are comfortable with, like, the way things are done currently, and unless you have a huge margin improvement, like, the stickiness is going to overweigh that. Like, if you have something that makes you 5% more productive, but you have to spend 30 minutes learning it, like, a lot of people would just not spend that time. Because they just don't, it's just, you know, it's the difficulty of delayed gratification. You have to spend time now to get a potential award later. And also, there's nothing that can guarantee an improvement in productivity. Maybe it doesn't work. So, there, often the risk reward may not even be worth it. So, you know, the idea that a bunch of business processes are going to be magically changed because of AI seems a bit naive to me. Because even if it is like something that can automate these things in a novel way, it's going to be difficult to see adoption like that. And so I, I, so I think that like my point is like my point of view here is a bit more coherent in the sense that like I'm more pessimistic because well I'm, I'm both pessimistic and optimistic in the sense that I, I think that a lot of things which people are saying well oh, yeah it's going to be able to automate I think we can already automate them now especially if we change you know what exactly we're doing or like change you know what what input we feed to the thing we want to automate to make it a bit easier to automate. So I'm optimistic in that sense, because I think there's a lot of stuff that could be automated that just hasn't been, because there's a lot of, you know, $100 barrels lying on the ground. But I'm also more pessimistic in the sense that I think there's a reason that these things haven't been automated, which is that it's, 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 it's hard, it can be hard to identify these things, first of all. And also, like, a lot of, you know, processes are resistant to change. Like, you can come up with a better way of doing something, and it's going to be hard to get adoption for it. And I guess... Coming up a bit short on this topic, because I think I've actually said most of what I wanted to say. I thought I had more and more interesting things to say about it.
I guess I, I summed up my points pretty well. But I guess sort of an addendum to this. It's a bit of a different topic is that I think a lot of our current like machine learning techniques would benefit from not necessarily revisiting the classical AI techniques it it say, but more so like being cognizant of being deployable in an automated way. It's like one problem with like the way people perceive how AI is going to be used and how the current models work is that there are these big black boxes and you have to sort of meet them where they are. Like if you're trying to use a large language model to automate something, you have to give it a you know, language in and it spits language out. You have some you have some interesting things where people um, do like sort of variable uh, inputs. So what they have is like prompts with like stubs for where different things are supposed to go. And so by having sort of this big prompt, like a few keyholes for things you can slot into it, it allows you to sort of have some amount of like programmability where like you can get sort of some function of the input. Like maybe you have like, I don't know, something simple. Maybe you want a thing that tells you like what the combination of two colors, you can have a prompt for that. And then that sort of two colors are just like stubs inside the prompt. And that gives you sort of a machine which will tell you what the mixing of two colors is. So you can sort of try and attempt to make sort of general cow, you know, general specific programs uh, from these models in that way. But, you know, it's, it, it's a bit tricky. But at the world, and I guess the, the way it occurs is that the control is sort of with the model. Like, you have to sort of conform to what the model, input the model expects, what output it's going to give you, and you really have to sort of fit everything you're doing there. So you have to, you have to kind of hamstring what you do into the model. The advantage is that, like, if, when it works, it works very well in the sense that it's, there's not much work you have to do at the input if it is working well. So for example, like the ideal that people have is like, you have like this personal AI assistant, you just ask it something and it responds very well. And that, and the issue with like trying to make that approach work is that like, uh, there's a long tail where it's not going to work. And in that long tail, there's not really much you can do to improve it beyond, you know, more heavyweight training. Like if I have a personal assistant, which is like wrong 20% of the time, and like it unpredictably so, it's just not very useful, unfortunately. And even if I get that to ten percent, it's also still not very useful. Like you, you need to get above a certain threshold for it to be usable. And there's also no way to sort of remedy around that. Like there's no way to say, you know, combine two of them uh, together to get it make it less wrong. And there's no way to sort of route around the errors. Like it's not like I know, oh, it's gonna be wrong for these things. So if I'm asking about this thing, I can do that instead. Like, you sort of have the system, and it's there, and you can either use it or not. But there's no way to sort of plug it into a larger system to sort of try and make something out of uh, what you can already get from it. Whereas I think a lot of software, at least good software, is sort of the opposite in the sense that, like, it has a specific function, and it will perform that function correctly, but in a limited way. So I guess the dichotomy here, I think I have it a bit more clear in the head, is that you have functionalities which are broad but imperfect, which are like sort of the AI models we have now. So you have a very broad kind of task you can do, like text prediction or image generation, but it's imperfect. Like it does stuff with a lot of mistakes, uh, perhaps even unpredictably so. Then you have more traditional software, which is sort of the opposite, where it's often very well-defined scope, so not very broad tasks. Like if you ask a program to do something, it will do just one thing, and it's not very good at like 
interpreting general commands and figuring out like what you want it to do, it would just do one thing. But it would do that one thing precisely. And I think this is really the, the strength of software because it's, it's, it's very complementary to how humans work. Uh, unlike a lot of AI systems, we try to sort of imitate humans. Because humans are sort of the first category. Humans are extremely broad in terms of the, the kinds of tasks we can achieve. You can ask someone, oh, you know, go to France and buy me some baguettes and they're be able to do that task with a given enough resources. It's very difficult to get a computer to, you know, charter a plane to, well, probably pretty good. But humans also make a lot of mistakes. Like if you ask a person to like draw an owl or a bicycle, they're probably going to make drawing that's not very good. But if you ask a computer, you know, search on Google for an image of an owl and give me the first result, you could program a little script to do that. And it would, you know, give you a perfect image of an owl. And in some sense, like, I think that's what's interesting about, like, the, the Pascal kind of programming is that it's very complementary to humans' work. So you can have these processes which are infallible, but limited in scope. But the advantage of an infallible process that's limited in scope is that it's much easier to compose into a larger system. Which is also infallible. I, I should, I, I should have. I have more comments on on how it's actually not infallible, because of sort of the epistemic uncertainty which comes with encoding your knowledge in the form of a program, and how, um, because, because basically a program is like a crystallized form of knowledge. You run into this inherent limitation, where as, as you build a complex system from parts that are individually well understood, you can often get sort of emergent behavior. That you don't understand, which is just a general like thing that happens in the system. But I mean, I I could talk for another half hour about you know just uh, what programming <laughs> in that in that philosophical. But I guess my point is that it, you know it's much easier to compose little programs that do something well in a noble and predictable way together because you, it's much easier to predict how the system will work. And you can actually try and engineer around flaws. So if I know that like if a program is very good at doing some specific thing, and I want to do some other thing, I know that I can just sort of add two programs side by side and use the one that's right that tool at hand. And I can say, oh, I'm going to write a program to detect which of the two I need to call. And if it's you know this kind of thing, I do this this program, and if it's this other kind of thing, I do that program. With an AI model, it's it's as people try to use them today, it's it's kind of difficult to do that. Um, you're kind of stuck with something that either works or doesn't. There's a lot of sort of internal engineering going on, but it's still difficult to really understand why these models make mistakes or predict when they're, they're going to make mistakes. And often they're getting to the point where they can sort of credibly, you know, bullshit you and convince you that they're not making mistakes. Where, like, you have to actually, you know, think it twice about whether or not they're making mistakes where that they are. And so where I like to see things evolve is towards a place where like AI is a, is a major subcomponent of 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 other programs. And actually, I think this is a, this is the case for a lot of things today. I guess it's sort of in some sense invisible AI. Like there are a lot of applications which are using AI and machine learning, and, and don't really advertise it, but it just enhances the thing. And I think this is chiefly because they use it in a way where it's sort of subservient. And in, well integrated into the rest of the sort of programming software they use. So one example is um, related to photos. So if you look at the photo app on your phone, there's a lot of digital processing which is now sort of relying on machine learning. 
like, I, I don't remember where I first read or, or saw this, but a lot of sort of what iPhones would do when take, taking pictures is they already apply a lot of machine learning processing. For example, um, I don't know if they're using it for denoising correctly. They might be using classical techniques there. But um, one thing I saw in a video presentation a few years ago was they're using it for um, in light enhancing when taking photography at night. That was one thing where they're using machine learning for. But when you do that for like an image filter, it, it goes into a very specific part of like an image processing pipeline. And maybe you denoise the image first with classical techniques. Uh, maybe you compress the image. Well, you probably want to do that at the end. But, uh, but then you can add, you know, classical filters, whatnot. Maybe you had some funny filters. And then you can have some machine learning techniques to, you know, faces, stuff like that. But it's, it's, a, it's a programmatic function that other software can use. So if the denoising isn't working, isn't like, if like the machine learning filter you have isn't working too well, you can like combine it with other classical techniques, sort of correct for those errors, where you're just not to use it, etc. Or like if you're trying to detect objects in an image, what you get out is sort of a programmatic representation that you can then use in another program. Like for example, um, a model which will spit out like a representation that another program can use of what objects are in an image is more useful from my perspective than a model which will give you a textual description of what's in the scene because the textual description is useful for a human. And that might be good, you know, for like a complicated you know, scene. But the issue is that you're sort of stuck with that. Like you can't, uh, can't really process it any further. Like it's either useful to the human directly or it's not. Whereas if you have a programmatic representation, you can input them to other software, which sort of try and correct stuff with more, you know, heuristic methods or just try and process it directly. And also this is, uh, this is something I liked a lot about the sort of original AlphaGo and then AlphaZero papers is that they use machine learning kind of judiciously that, so these were models that played Go and chess with board games. And the, the thing is that they didn't really depart at a fundamental level from like the classical techniques we have for playing these board games, which is that you basically look at like all the moves you can do and try to select the best one and you select the best one based on, you know, what happens if you play that move and what other moves can the other person play. So you get this sort of like decision tree where I play this and they can play all these moves. Then for each of those moves, I can play all these moves in response. And this tree grows very large quickly. And what you're supposed to do is like, ideally, you sort of evaluate all the things of the tree, then you'd be able to decide the best move based on all the possibilities later on. But you can't sort of explore all these possibilities. So instead, you need some kind of heuristic decide which are the important ones to play. For example, in chess, there's going to be some moves that are just obviously bad, so you can remove those. And what's interesting is that they used a machine learning model which learned the heuristic. But otherwise, they still use sort of classical tree as like the base algorithm. And so that, I thought it was an interesting approach in that you have this machine learning model doing something very specific, where being sort of a bit off doesn't necessarily matter. You want it to be good, but you know, being wrong in the heuristic from time to time isn't like the end of the world. But then you embed this into a classical algorithm, which is very precise. And then the end result is a very good system, which is able to extend the capabilities of a classical program in a way that preserves a lot of the nice properties. For example, if you have like a chess engine, you can plug it into a lot of automated software. I have a chess engine I can put into a browser game. I can use it to like calculate things about chess. So I can maybe maybe I want to calculate like what's uh What's the advantage that uh, white, the, the player that was first in chess had for black? You know, 
if I have an AI that plays chess very well, it's very useful to explore that kind of question. But if I just have a black box that I have to interact with physically to play chess, I can't really explore those kinds of questions because I need to sort of use it within other software. So I think ideally, you know, this machine learning stuff is best when integrated as part of larger software or even just integratable. That'd be a good step forward. But I guess that's like kind of summarize we've been talking about for the past half hour. So I guess my, my, my point is that I don't think that AI is going to cause massive changes in economic growth. I think it's going to be more or less uh, the same, maybe, maybe slightly better. But I don't think even improvements attributable to technology are not necessarily going to be just AI. I think you know automation with traditional techniques is going to continue as it has been for the past 50 years. And because over the past 50 years, for you know, a variety of reasons, including you know, businesses being sticky and not really wanting to change, we're not going to see that much more impact on growth than we did from just computers as a whole. And computers as a whole are going to have more impact than AI in the coming decade, at the very least. And I think if AI wants to be very useful, it should try and integrate itself and play well with existing software and with how we build computer systems rather than trying to sort of replace them wholesale. I don't think that's going to be a very viable approach, especially as we sort of run out of data and compute to use the these models. So I guess that's it. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.